You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, conversations with the icons of our time. A good reporter must be skeptical. Cynicism is something completely different. I can truthfully say that while I've made a lot of mistakes, becoming a cynic is not one of them. Longtime broadcast journalist Dan Rather. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Welcome to Premier Week for Season 6 of Now I've Heard Everything. Yeah, we have five seasons behind us. You can find all 500 or so episodes that we've posted so far at our website, heardeverything.com. And we continue to post new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. On Monday of this week, we brought you my 1994 conversation with singer-songwriter John Denver. Wednesday, my 1987 talk with Shirley MacLaine. And today my 1994 conversation with a TV news icon. Dan Rather has been a fixture in American journalism since the early 1950s. Growing up in Texas, the young Dan Rather listened to the radio to Edward R. Murrow's broadcasts and became enamored with the idea of becoming a journalist himself. By the early 60s, Rather had established himself in local television in Texas, and he joined CBS shortly thereafter. Eventually, Rather was promoted to White House Correspondent, where he famously had a number of run-ins with Richard M. Nixon. And then, in 1981, Dan Rather was chosen by CBS to succeed the retiring Walter Cronkite as anchor of the CBS Evening News, a position that Dan Rather then held for the next 24 years. And not without some controversy along the way. Now, in 1976, Dan Rather wrote a book about TV news called The Camera Never Blinks. Then in 1994, he wrote its sequel, a book called The Camera Never Blinks Twice. And that's when I had the chance to meet him for one of our several conversations. So here now, from 1994, Dan Rather. The Camera Never Blinks was one of the delightful surprises of my career. I had no expectations for the book. I was overwhelmed that the book did well. And I had no thought at that time of doing a sequel or a second to it. A couple of years after The Camera Never Blinks came out, in 1976-77, I began thinking of trying to do a trilogy, a three-book series, under the rough heading of True Tales of Television. And I see The Camera Never Blinks twice as the second of the trilogy. Ooh, so there's more. <laughs> well, I hope there will be. <laughs> well, it, it's it's a natural. I mean, certainly your career, your your visibility didn't end in '76. I mean, obviously you've got some great stories to tell in here. Well, thank you very much, and I'm so pleased that you said that. Uh, when I wrote the camera never blinks '76 '77, I was with 60 Minutes, and I thought, I, as a journalist, I had died and gone to heaven. And I thought that's probably where I would end my career. That was not to be. Uh, what I've tried to do with The Camera Never Blinks twice is much of what I attempted to do with The Camera Never Blinks, which is two things. First of all, uh, I have adventures, I've had adventures, and this is a book of adventure stories, as was the original Camera Never Blinks. Some of the adventures uh, turned out well, some not so well, and a lot it was hard to tell. In telling the adventures, in explaining what we call in the among journalists, war stories, which isn't to say that it's all about war, but stories we have covered. I also hope to give people a sense, to give the reader a sense of what it's like, what it's really like on the inside of network television news, or at least CBS news, how decisions get made, 
how stories get covered, because I know that the reality on the inside is frequently at great variance with how people imagine it to be. I must also compliment you on your sense of pacing. In the middle of this very tense story about Afghanistan, we're wondering if you're going to get out alive. I, I stumbled upon this little three or two or three page uh, uh, treatise on chewing tobacco. <laughs> and it just it, it came at just the right moment to break the tension just enough to relax and we could say, all right, we know he gets out alive because he wrote the book afterwards. <laughs> but it was, a, it was a great little tension reliever in there. Well, thank you very much. I grew up in a time and place where people, uh, unfortunately, chewed tobacco. I grew up in Texas, and every able-bodied male in Texas was raised with the belief that he absolutely must be a football hero and then either a cowboy or an oil field hand. Cowboys and oil field hands all chewed tobacco. It's a foul habit, and it can be injurious to your health. I gave it up a long time ago. However, as I was in Afghanistan, I had, as I wrote in the book, a cigar which had been given to me by Fidel Castro, which I had treasured and carried along in its own canister. And at a certain point, I intended to smoke the cigar there. But when I brought it out, uh, the Mujahideen who were guiding us through a very dangerous situation had light discipline, which is to say no lights. So I put the cigar back in his canister, and I did have this pouch of red man chewing tobacco, which I decided to chew. Uh, they looked on in great amaz uh, amazement and uh, saw it as uh, humorous, to say the least. But when I offered them a chaw, uh, they declined. <laughs> Perhaps one. Maybe they heard the Surgeon General's report. <laughs> well, I hope so, because it, it is bad for your health. And I do want to set the record straight about one thing. In connection with the Cameron Evelyn Links twice, I was on the David Letterman program, was scheduled to be. But I do want you to know there was a person on the David Letterman program who chewed tobacco, but it was not I. This was the winner of the Dan Rather Lookalike contest, and this man goes around giving me a very bad name about chewing tobacco on television. So it's important to me that you know that I actually wasn't there. Now, you were the one who were singing railroad songs. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and I have a new uh, railroad song exercise video out. <laughs> it's train songs to sweat by. <laughs> Well, you know, I, for, for those of us who remember the first book and, and you know, the, the, the water moccasins up to your butt, you know, during the flood or, or, the, or the, the assassination in Dallas, now here you come, you're trooping through Afghanistan, you're interviewing Saddam Hussein at midnight in his, in, in his suite. And it just, it, it reads like a real-life Marco Polo. Well, I appreciate you saying that. Again, I get back to adventures. As a kid, I was raised on adventure stories, as I explained in the book. I read Kipling as a child, for better or for worse. He's gone a little out of fashion now, but Kipling was all about adventure. And if anyone wants to know not just what it's like to be on the David Letterman program, if anyone wants to know how decisions get made for an evening news broadcast or what it's like to interview Saddam Hussein in the Baghdad Palace alone after midnight or what it's like to go back to Vietnam with General Norman Schwarzkopf, then they'll find out some of those things in this book. What is there that drives you to still be out in the field and actually have your hands on the news? And a lot of anchor people are just content to sit in the studio, read the script somebody else hands them, and collect a big fat check. Well, I understand that. Uh, it's not my way. I love the news. Why do I do it? I love the news. I have a passion for news. I have a passion for the daily news game, for better or for worse. I was told when I was a younger reporter that you had to get out of daily news by, say, age 35, 38, or 40. It was always said, you know, your legs go and your drive goes. 
hasn't been my experience, didn't happen to me. I really like to be out on a story, as I said, and I'll read it off the back cover of the book, you know, from the camera rulings twice, that there's nothing like the feeling to be out in a place like Afghanistan or Somalia or driving to Kuwait City, when driving, I mean, really driving, trying to get there during the Persian Gulf War, that sense of being out on the cutting edge and out front on a world-class story, it gives you an adrenaline flow. It also gives me a sense of satisfaction, and that's what I always dreamed of doing. When I was a kid, I dreamed of being a world-class reporter, and I'm still trying to be that. I hope my best work is still ahead of me. I think it is. But in my effort to be a first-class, world-class reporter, I have gone to the edge of a lot of stories. Sometimes I've flopped and failed. Other times we've been lucky and gotten out front. Have you found over the years that boyhood dream has been an effective vaccine against the onset of cynicism? Yes. I can truthfully say that I have many flaws, but being a cynic is not one of them. I don't believe in cynicism. A reporter has to be skeptical. A good reporter must be skeptical, and I have made of myself uh, a skeptic when necessary. A journalistic skeptic looks at things and says, okay, this is how it appears to be, but how is it really? Whether you're at the White House or Afghanistan, those are important questions if you're going to have journalism of integrity. Cynicism is something completely different, and I can truthfully say that while I've made a lot of mistakes, Becoming a cynic is not, is not one of them. After this short break, Dan Rather talks about the part of his job he never really got comfortable with. Start your day with Now I've Heard Everything. We post new episodes every Monday, Wednesday and Friday at 5 o'clock a.m. Eastern Time. Subscribe now so you'll have something fresh to listen to and get your day going. Back to my 1994 conversation with Dan Rather. Would it be accurate to say that you're a little uncomfortable with the idea that that you are often the center of attention as much as the news you are covering is? That would be fair. I've never gotten comfortable with that. It goes with the territory. If you're going to be the anchor person and managing editor of the CBS Evening News, if you're going to be the anchor correspondent for programs such as 48 Hours, if you're going to do a daily radio analysis program, uh, you sometimes are going to be the center of attention when you don't want to be. I have had any number of people say to me, and I've discussed this in the camera never blinks twice, Dan, you made a mistake when you came to the anchor chair, that you continued to be a reporter, and people expect something else of an anchor. First of all, I don't believe that. I don't believe that people expect something else. I have to say that I can't do it any other way. I am what I am. I dream what I dream. I'm driven to do some things. And I've always seen myself as a reporter anchor, not an anchor reporter. And there's an important difference there. That it is seductive to sit in a windowless room on the west side of Manhattan and pass yourself off as an authority and as a credible eyewitness to history. I think the, the audience, I think viewers and listeners, understand the difference between someone who is satisfied to stay in the quiet confines of anchordom in New York and someone who says, listen, some of the time, at least some of the time, 
I have to get out there on the cutting edge of the story. And in the long run, it is that that day-to-day hands-on involvement in news that is going to overshadow and and remove the distractions of whether or not you wore a sweater and what kind of sweater it was, what you chose to say at the end of the broadcast. Why do you say courage? What does that mean? Uh, you know, what's the frequency, <laughs> Kenneth? You know, six minutes in Miami. All these things that that do really tend to pale when you look at your the, the history of what you've done. Well, I very much appreciate you saying that. Um, I can say with a smile, because it's true, that I've made almost every mistake in the book at least twice, and I have the scars to show for it. I believe, and I certainly hope, that my scars are all from the front and honorably earned. You mentioned a number of occasions which did not turn out well. Miami and the so-called Six Minutes of Black, which I discuss in the book, which was basically a failed effort on my part to stand up for a little principle, I thought. I thought the Pope's visit to the United States was more important than the semifinal of a tennis tournament. In trying to make that point, we had a messy day. And I did feel, with the camera links twice, that I couldn't just tell those adventures that it turned out well. Afghanistan turned out well. We had a great scoop on a great world-class story. Miami and the visit of the Pope and the six minutes of black didn't turn out well. The George Bush interview in 1988, which was a stunned surprise for me, didn't turn out well. What's the Frequency Kenneth, which had to do with a mugging in New York, which is still unsolved and I didn't understand then and don't understand now. It's the subject of a new song by R.E.M. I trust you know that I had a lot to do with starting R.E.M. Did you really? Yes. Uh, This is a fairly well-kept secret until recently. But the name of this band was going to be Rather's Eel Mongers. (laughs) R.E.M., uh, Unfortunately, the record company didn't think that people would take to that, and they insisted on making it R.E.M. And I, before What's the Frequency, Kenneth, I had influenced some of their music. Uh, they had a song called Boxcars, which was clearly my train song influence. <laughs> I, I sense that you've got a whole other career waiting for you as a stand-up comic. No, Radio Free Europe, which was an R.E.M. song, is clearly my broadcasting influence. <laughs> well, you know, if, if actually, if you if you take this book and the camera never blinks, and I remember, I remember, those three books, even though they're not the trilogy you had in mind, it really does, I mean, you can almost... See the progression of the, the listening to the radio broadcast, the Edward R. Murrow influence, and the the ideals, the values that stay with you through all these years, and to make you what you are today. I mean, this is it. It is. I, I anxiously await volume three or four. Well, I really appreciate that. That, as you know from reading the camera links twice, that there is a section of the book which deals with my concerns over the what I call the Hollywoodization of the news, the sleazing of the news. Having said to you, I love the news. I love covering the news. I'm worried about what all of us are doing in some of our decision-making about what to cover and how to cover it. I do not accept myself from the criticism, but I think we all need to think a little carefully about what it is we're doing with the integrity of the news because entertainment values are very close to completely swamping, completely flooding out news values. And without being preachy about it, Uh, I care about this craft. I care about this profession, news, electronic news, where I've spent my later years. And I I know it's important to those of us 
in the business, but I also happen to think it's very important to the country to maintain at least some news of integrity, some news that does not have at base entertainment values. You uh, you open the book, as a matter of fact, with the anecdote about how to cover the the uh, Cardinal uh, Bernardine uh, accusations. Well, how pleased I am you noticed that that in my effort to have people understand how decisions get made in a newsroom, I chose this case of the Roman Catholic Cardinal in Chicago who was accused of child abuse. And I detail in the book our discussions about what to do with that story. That story, as so many others turn out to be, was not so much a story as it was an accusation. And we had a debate among ourselves. We know that our competition is going to run with this story and run with it hard. And we say to ourselves, we don't really want to deal with it. We don't certainly don't want to lead the broadcast with it. But if we don't do it, our competition is going to tear us up. Now, the reason for going through that is so the reader will get an understanding of how it is, how it really is when it comes to decision-making time on the evening news. Dan Rather is 92 now and still covering the news. Since 2021, he's written the column Steady on the Substack platform. Now you can get a copy of The Camera Never Blinks Twice by Dan Rather by tapping the link in our show notes or by going to our website, heardeverything.com. We may earn an Amazon commission if you make a purchase. Heardeverything.com is where you can also hear my 1992 interview with another well-known broadcast journalist who anchored the news himself on another network for many years, Jim Lehrer. Just a few minutes before the plane was due to land in Dallas, the rewrite man downtown said, do they have the bulletproof bubble top on the car? And I said, well, I'll go find out. And the guy talks on the radio and he says, yes, it's clear downtown. So yells back to these other agents, take off the bubble top. And my 2004 conversation with one of Dan Rather's CBS News colleagues, Charles Osgood. Almost everybody subscribed to the paper, so almost every porch, you'd throw the paper up on the porch, hoping that you would actually land, the paper would really land on the porch and not up on the roof or in the bushes. And so that's where I learned the importance of accuracy in In journalism. Yes. And, of course, you can hear all 500 or so of our episodes that we've aired since Season 1 at our website, heardeverything.com. And we post new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, wherever you listen to podcasts. And thank you so much for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, as the nation prepares to mark Martin Luther King Jr. Day, we'll revisit my 1994 interview with a famous actress who tells the story of how Martin Luther King Jr. helped shape not only her career, but the future of a beloved TV series. My interview with Lieutenant Uhura, Nichelle Nichols from Star Trek. And so I stood and stood into the face, and the fan turned out to be Dr. Martin Luther King. When I said I was leaving the show, he said, You cannot. You absolutely cannot. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Thank you.